Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This interview originally occurred at the 2012 AWP conference in Chicago. The recording features Brian Broder and Kathleen Graber. Hello, and welcome to the Association of Writers and Writing Programs podcast. I'm Brian Broder, and I'm here at the 2012 AWP annual conference in Chicago with poet Kathleen Graber. Kathleen Graber is the author of two collections of poetry, The Eternal City, which was chosen for the Princeton Series of Contemporary Poets and was a finalist for the National Book Award, and Correspondence, winner of the Saturnalia Books Poetry Prize. Graber's honors include a Rona Jaff Writer's Award, an Artist Fellowship from the New Jersey State Council on the Arts, a Harder Fellowship in Creative Writing at Princeton University, and an Amy Lowell Poetry Traveling Scholarship. She has taught at New York University and Virginia Commonwealth University. Kathleen Graber, welcome. Thank you. Um, I'd like you to start with a poem, if you wouldn't mind. Would you, um, would you read uh, What I Meant to Say? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, <clears throat> what I Meant to Say. In three weeks, I will be gone. Already my suitcase stands overloaded at the door. I've packed, unpacked, and repacked it, making it tell me again and again what it couldn't hold. Some days it's easy to see the significant insignificance of everything. But today I wept all morning over the swollen, optimistic heart of my mother's favorite newscaster, which suddenly blew itself to stillness. I have tried for weeks to predict the weather on the other side of the world. I don't want to be wet or overheated. I've taken out the complete Shakespeare to make room for a slicker, and I've changed my mind and put it back. Soon, no one will know what I mean when I speak. Last month, after graduation, a student stopped me just outside the university gates despite a downpour. He wanted to tell me that he loved best James Schuyler's poem for Auden. So much to remember, he recited in the rain as the shops began to close their doors around us. I thought he would live a long time. He did not. Then a car loaded with his friends pulled up honking, and he hopped in. There was no chance to linger and talk. Today I slipped into the bag between two shoes, that book which begins with a father digging, even though my father was no farmer and planted ever only once one myrtle late in his life and sat in the yard all that summer watching it grow as he died a green tank of oxygen suspirating behind him. If the suitcase were any larger, no one could lift it. I'm going away for a long time, but it may not be forever. There are tragedies I haven't read. Kyle, bundle up. You're right. It's hard to say simply what is true. Thank you. Um... That last line uh, or last sentence, it's hard to say simply what is true, um, is really, really resonates, um, I think, throughout that whole book, in a sense. Um, is this one of the ambitions of your work, uh, you know, to, or larger ambitions of your work, to speak the truth about complex subjects? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I don't have the uh, naive ambition to say them simply. So hence the poems tend to be pretty long and rangy. Mm -hmm. But I do hope that in that ranginess I get at something, some sort of truth. 
That's that is absolutely complicated because the truth is always complicated. Um, uh, what I meant to say also strikes an elegiac tone, um, which is echoed throughout the Eternal City, addressing the theme of lost the theme of lost connections. Um, would you call yourself an elegiac poet, or is this term too reductive? Um, I don't mind being called an elegiac <laughs> poet. I you know I I I, um, I like being sad. Uh, <laughs> I, I had a lot of loss um, very suddenly in my life. Uh, you know, a lot of people in my family died in quick succession, and it was very traumatizing. And so I feel, I'm hopeful that this book has sort of provided a way to process that. And uh, Not that I think that poetry is really therapy, but I don't want to go on being elegiac forever. Mm -hmm. I think that this book may be elegiac, and I'm hoping to strike somewhat different tones in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, your poems are also concerned with uh, the intersection of mental and geographical landscapes. Um, in the tradition of Charles Wright, your poems often find the speaker gazing at the weather, getting locked out of her apartment, or packing a suitcase before poems move into more sublime territory. Um, could you comment on the, mer on the merging of the mundane and the metaphysical in your poems? Uh, actually, I learned everything about that from Charles Wright. <laughs> when I first read his poems, I thought, wow, who knew a poem could do that? That's terrific. I want to do that. Um, so I was a philosophy major as an undergraduate. It was a long time ago, but I feel that that really stamped me early on with the love of ideas and thinking and big systems. And uh, there's a sort of elegance and optimism to system builders, you know, like Hegel or Kant or something. You know, somebody really ambitious in, their, in the scope of their philosophical vision. Um, and I think that there's a, a great strain of anti-intellectualism in America. People are very suspicious of um, big philosophical ideas. Uh, and, and they think they have nothing to do with reality that here are these ideas, and they're ivory-towered, and they're very other from our mundane, ordinary lives. And I, I actually just don't live my life that way. Mm -hmm. I, when I go through my day, I often, you know, some, I will often simultaneously be thinking about Kierkegaard and thinking about laundry, you know, and so they, they just sort of go around in my head um, in a jumble. And so the poems are, are very much just fixing that sensibility to the page at the most fundamental level. But they also aspire to resanctify everyone's dailiness, to sort of say, no, your, your daily life is actually um, in conversation with some fundamental questions about the nature of what it means to be human, questions that we've asked for as long as we've had language to ask them, and, and for this reason, they, they are important. Um, could you talk a little more about this, uh, you know, the uh, uh, optimism of uh, philosophical system building um, and maybe how, if this has anything directly to do with your own work, if you see, you know, the, the kind of uh, system building of, uh, you know, a, a book of poems or even a poem itself or maybe a life's work of writing poetry? Mm -hmm. um, well, AWP is such a hotbed melting pot of ideas, and so <laughs> you don't really, sometimes you get very far away from what, uh, are actually your fundamental underlying assumptions. You, you be, what I mean by being far away from them is you no longer realize that you're operating under these fundamental assumptions until someone says something that's um, that contradicts them, contradicts yeah, them yeah. and you realize that how stupid you how stupid your fundamental underlying assumptions have been. Um, and so uh, 
So when I say this optimistic, optimistic here might be a code word for naive, mm -hmm. because I would say that philosophical trends um, in the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st century have really been um, about dismantling these big systems and sort of saying these sort of categorical uh, structures and binary ways of thinking about the world are flawed and, and language is problematic and it, it is encoded with all kinds of hierarchical power systems and we need to be suspicious mm -hmm. about all these things and we have to be really careful and nuanced and even under the best circumstances it's still all hopeless and going to fail. <laughs> and, and so, uh, and so, and you know, and make some people um, servants to other people uh, despite our best intentions. And so, um, I, I I have a hard time holding on to that dismantling. I I don't for whatever reason I still have great faith in sense and in language and um and so you know for that's when I when I say like these optimistic system builders I really think that I guess one way to look at the inevitable failure of mind and language is uh, is to write something that doesn't aspire to sense, since it can't achieve it. But the other response is to say, I know it will fail, but I'm still going to give it my best shot because both I and the other and uh, and the people I share in the world with may find some solace and some small bit of meaning in the midst of the meaningless. So an antithesis to that uh, to that essential uh, optimism might, might be silence in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so rather than silence, or rather than something random, uh -huh. right? Because you can think of an, a very avant-garde experimental poem that might be purely random, or you know, or even if it's not random, uh, aspire to make meaning um, in a non-syntactically normal way. Uh -huh, sure. So clarity is a uh, is is uh, is a big uh, goal. <laughs> I do. I know. Yeah. So I try really, really hard to be as clear as I possibly can about things it is impossible to be clear about. Yes, that's a, that's a very good way of think, putting it. Um, I read that in uh, 1994, after years of teaching high school English, this is a shift here. You were okay. you were inspired while uh, while leading a class field trip of, uh, to the Geraldine R. Dodge Festival uh, to begin writing poems. Subsequently, earning an MFA. Um, is this true? And if so, would you mind uh, talking about how you arrived at poetry? It is true. Um, it's yeah. I um, I was actually teaching middle school, so it's it's even a sort of more dramatic story if you if you've ever hung out with middle school students for a long time. Um, a friend of mine asked me if I would chaperone her her high school students to a to a poetry festival in New Jersey, the Dodge Poetry Festival. It's the biggest poetry festival in North America. Plug plugging them. Yes. Um, and uh, and I said that I would do that, and reluctantly said I would do that, and sort of said, "Listen, you have to understand, I don't know anything about contemporary American poetry." And, and she said, "That's that's okay. They give you a teacher's pack." <laughs> so uh, so I read the teacher's pack, and I liked what I read, and there were absolutely you know um, very senior. Uh, dynamic, important American poets about to appear, up to appear on the day I was bringing these students. You know, Mark Doty, Robert Pinsky, Adrian Rich, Robert Haas, they were, they were all there. Um, and so, you know, I always say that I really don't think that the students came away changed. I think really what they thought of was this was a great way to meet other high school students uh, and hang out on the lawn and, and sort of do that, get a sandwich. And then, But I went to the tent and, and really listened to everyone and I was 
uh, actually was when Mark Doty got up and he read uh, a poem called Visitation. And I thought, wow, that's contemporary American poetry. I want to learn to do that. Yeah, I came home and said to my husband, I gotta be a poet. He said, yeah, don't quit your day job. <laughs> Good luck with that. I think, you, yeah, don't cash in the pension just yet. And it was a long, I, I give myself credit for having had that, had that like kind of epiphanic moment and then somehow following through on that because it took years. You, you got, it takes a long time to, the apprenticeship of a poet is a long time. And I've certainly, um, exceeded all my expectations and really didn't expect very much. I expected to write a couple halfway decent poems. Is a, is a poet ever a master? I mean, you mentioned the word apprenticeship. Is this a lifelong apprenticeship or? I think it is a lifelong mm -hmm. apprenticeship, but I think there are obviously, um, you know, we could look at Dante and I think would be undeniably a master. Um, and then there are people in our own uh, time who are always for me because I got such a late start on poetry. I mean, people who are my contemporaries are actually like age wise are contemporary with me are actually maybe four or five, six books ahead of me in terms of publication and in terms of um, struggling through sort of certain I would call them likely to be inevitable crises, even though we may have very different aesthetics, but the desire not to write the same book and yeah. and so you can. I, I can often apprentice myself to texts rather than do the people who wrote the texts. And in a sense, uh, you know, poetry is sort of like a you know conversation with the dead mm -hmm. in many senses. And uh, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, apprenticing under the masters, uh, you know, without them knowing it. Yeah, they don't have to even be alive. That's the be <laughs> that's the beauty part. You're not bothering anybody with a poetic crisis in the middle of the night. You can, <laughs> you just open the book and figure it out for yourself. Um. So often your poems begin with epigraphs from writers as diverse as Issa, Marcus Aurelius, St. Augustine, William Blake, and Adorno. Um, I actually counted only eight poems in the Eternal City without epigraphs. Uh, do, your, do your poems uh, tend to originate from your own reading of these and other authors? Um, and could you talk about the ways your poems often quote from outside texts? Yeah, um, I'm holding my head in my hands. It's true with the <laughs> epigraphs. And I, I'm trying really hard to not to give up that um, tick that crutch. Um, I want so much in the poems and that as big as the poems are and as capacious as their embrace is, there, I find that there's always something that they could contain that I can't figure out how to get in. Mm -hmm. um, or is the generative, so with the Marcus Aurelius quotes, those are actually generative epigraphs and the poems are written as sort of riffs and direct response to those epigraphs. So the epigraphs function um, Differently, they, they, even though many poems have them, they don't all have them working in exactly the same way. So the Issa epigraphs, for example, are much more conceptual. They're about conceptually framing the hidden, unspoken concern of the poem. So one is about um, the moment of conversion when Issa takes his poetic name. And so I think of, I actually think about the Eternal City as sort of being the narrative of, of that transformation in my own life. And so that is the first epigraph actually in the book. And so that's what it's doing there. But it's bizarrely um, fronting a poem that is about um, Augustine. So there you mm -hmm. go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, so I'm not very uh, strict in what can go, one thing can go next to each other. Um, most of my, like, after I left teaching middle school, 
I went on to get an MFA at NYU, and I worked for a long time during my studies and then after my studies in the composition program there. And it's a terrific um, progressive uh, comp program, expository writing program, and I learned a lot. I learned probably as much about writing the kind of poem that I write, which is a little bit anomalous, um, from teaching composition and thinking about composition theory then That's I, wild. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. The, then I did from actually um, taking, getting my MFA, uh, and a, and a lot of what I learned was how to slate a text and to provide it with um, sufficient context to make it understandable without to a to a reader who may be smart but may not know the person you're referring to. And so the po that's the aspiration of the poem is to work like an essay. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> are there are there particular um, particular uh, comparet theorists who uh, who really especially informed uh, your your work or? Uh, that's a good question. Um, Peter Elbow or something. No, I'm really um, yeah. Peter Elbow was actually at at NYU, and that was the name that came to my mind. And I thought that that's really not the kind. I'm not. He's sort of a, an expressive yeah. uh, person, and so his you know more towards self-expression. And I think that I tend a lot more towards logos and almost a kind of really um, classic, but you know, uh, Aristotelian vision of. Um, Persuasion. In fact, I just was on a panel talking about that, and and sort of about the character of the speaker as being a really important component to the coherence and uh, believability or compelling nature of the poem in the long run. Maybe the ethos of the poem too. Would, yes, would, that's yeah, exactly yeah. yeah. That's what I'm So the ethos of the speaker really matters, and I think in these poems. That's the that is often the thing that holds them together. Is if nothing else, here's a voice that is um, not ironic, really earnest, very engaged, very sad a lot of the time, but also filled with still a love for the world and for the small things in the world and, and full of wonder. And I think, I, I'm, I like to think that's a likable <laughs> combination and a trustworthy combination because I think most people have a have those feelings, right, that they also contain that multitude of uh, sentiments. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, I think the speaker also has uh, the great advantage of being eclectic in in her her tastes in uh, literature. You know, having this uh, you know this ranginess of uh, using Issa and using uh, you know Marcus Aurelius, etc. Putting all these all these folks together <coughs> into one poem or one book. Or um, anyway, could you? So uh, you mentioned this issue of uh, of the speaker in your poems. Um, so I guess maybe this is a two part question. One. Uh, is this a singular speaker between correspondence and, and between the new book and um, and also stuff that you're working on now, maybe? And then two, um, could you speak to the formation of this voice? Oh, sure, I think. Um, <laughs> it, uh, one of these, this is this goes to the heart of one of those fundamental assumptions we operate under, but are wrong. And one of those would be like sort of a unified sense of self. Mm -hmm. And so I absolutely go through the world believing that I am today in some fundamental way related to the person who went to bed last night. Um, but I realize that we all have multiple selves, and and uh, and we have multiple selves that we show to different people. Um, but that's very that kind of um, evolving variant collection of selves is very different from what we would call a persona poem. 
And so none none of the poems, I've never written a truly, I mean, I've written persona poems, but none of them have ever seen the light of day. And so, um, but I have tried recently to sort of channel um, a speaker with inside of myself that's maybe a little um, glibber or something. I don't really, <laughs> lo- I, I dislike irony, but it's a little harder hitting because this speaker is so, just, I don't know, soft and... Uh, and so to maybe a little more punch, just even to the syntax, not necessarily a, a radical shift in the self, but a radical shift in the expression of the self. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make yeah, sense? Absolutely, okay. absolutely. Um, so uh, could you could we talk a little bit more about this, um, you know, uh, your incorporating of disparate material into the same poem and, uh, you know, how you sort of uh, imbue that material with an emotional and, and psychological resonance um, that it might not otherwise have? Um, how do you decide what should go into a poem and uh, what should stay out? Um, do you, you know, work by accumulation? Uh, I think when I first started, uh, I hit on this strategy of um, a collage or assemblage or appropriated text as basically as an essayistic strategy because I would always tell my composition students when you've gotten to the end of as far as you are capable of thinking about something on your own, now is the perfect moment to insert an outside voice that in some way acts like the bumper in a pinball game. I hope anybody, so I hope this is probably the most nostalgic analogy ever, but that, you know, you shoot the ball and it hits something and the trajectory of the, of the thought, like the trajectory of the shot, is altered by this this citation. It's inca- it's encountered. The function of the citation is never merely to reiterate what you already knew, but to change your thought and to augment it in some interesting way. And so I just basically, you know, would write a poem and the poem would bog down, and I'd get to the end of uh, of what I you know had to say. And, and a lot of people probably smarter people than me would just have ended the poem. They, they, they call that the end of the poem. Uh, and, uh, and, but I, you know, I didn't, didn't occur to me. I was like, oh, I need an outside text. I, you know, I need fuel. And so um, I used to sort of, uh, yeah, put, put, figure out, I would write that little bit, and then I could kind of, I would think really very consciously about appropriate outside text. And I might even have the outside text first. Like, I love this text. I want to write a poem around this text as the core text. Uh, and that was sort of how some poems and correspondence came into being that way. But over time, I became more trusting of my associative leaping. And so now I sort of say, oh, I've gotten to the end of this. What's the first thing that comes into my head? And I just, you know, some something will pop into my head, something I've read, and I'll be like... And I'll just have at it with that, you know, I may have to go to the shelf and say, wow, I haven't read, you know, City of God in a long time. (laughs) You know, what am I, what do I want to say? Like, that's what I thought of. So, you know, I trust that that there's a synaptic pathway that has been traveled at some point before, and I just have to discover why my brain fired that way. That's great. Can you uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about your uh, your composition process, uh, or your process of composition, rather, and, um, you know, so it sounds like you do. You are actually sitting there, and then you know you're you're, you're composing, and then you say, "Okay, well, I've hit a wall, um, popsicles or something," you know, right, and, then yeah. you, and then you go to whatever that is. So, any, so could you could you talk yeah, about? Yeah, that's composing? exactly yeah. what happens. Mm-hmm. I I hit a wall, 
And I just either say, you know, to myself, what have you done lately? Because, um, you know, frequently, even though the poem doesn't seem, the poem may seem to be about an instance, uh, a precipitating event that's very local, very temporally local. Uh, you know, my experience with my own life is that there's not a real, there's not a lot of, dis um, I don't know, distinction between events of a time period. And so if something is happening recently, it's very likely that some shadow of that is, is still evident in whatever the precipitating event of this particular poem is purporting to be. And so I might just say, what if, you know, did I see a movie? Did I, like, what have I been reading? What's happening in the news? Like, you know, or sometimes I have to like ask myself, what are you feeling? And I'll be like, I'm feeling sad. Why am I feeling sad? And I'll be like, oh, Tim Russert died. You know, like, I'm sad because Tim Russert died. That's so bizarre. You know, and then I'll think, well, my mom loved him and I'm probably sad because this is like a last you know, like I've grieved for her, and now I'm grieving for her grief. Like right. this is like her, I'm vicariously grieving because she can't be here to grieve herself. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's that's one. But sometimes I write right into the poem um, the process. So, like in the drunkenness of Noah, I write just now. I stopped the poem and went to the closet mm -hmm. because sometimes you just got to get out of your chair and you're like, I'm gonna just walk around and hope something strikes me. Uh -huh. and, you know, I've got a house full of you know, really weird random stuff. And so I'm like, oh, it's full thread. Oh, you know, open the drawer. Look, it's in, look what's in there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, um, what are you working on now? Is there a new manuscript in the works? Or? Um, I've been teaching uh, an, awful, an awfully lot, really too much, though I love teaching. And I've been, you know, I've, we've talked about it. I've been a teacher of all kinds of people, of all ages of people for almost all of my life. And so that's a big part of my being really um and so i don't mind you do doing that and it's it's to a large extent um rewarding and feeding of my poems but i've been do I, I actually am doing too much of that and so that's about to come to an end in may i'm going to take the summer off from teaching i have been working on a little and i, I guess what i'm saying is i'm not making as quick the progress is not as swift as i would like it to be but um i thought the eternal city dealt a lot with the past the landscape of the past. Like, it's called the Eternal City because it, the, the, you know, it's a metaphor for the mind as much as for a metaphor, as a metaphor for Rome. It has an ep the whole book has an epigraph by Freud in which he says everything that ever happened um, exists simultaneously in the theater of memory um, that is our psyche. Um, and so the Eternal City could reach back to Marcus Aurelius and... Um, and to these other like these other literary figures, um, Augustine, um, and such, and, and that was really where it was looking to make sense of itself in relation to these sort of seminal classic texts. And I think that what I want to do in the new book is to is to uh, be much more in the present moment. And so there's a series of poems that are direct. I know this has been done before. Direct addresses to America, mm -hmm. and that's sort of a There'll be a series of those, but I feel, you know, um, maybe I am elegiac. They're elegiac because I think of America as being like a, a very ill, potentially terminally ill mm -hmm. relative that you have a vexed relationship with, but nevertheless, you know, are sad to see dying. And st still love. And still yeah. love, right. And then that's been really hard, too. I mean, that's been a, a really interesting confrontation because um, my parents were very liberal, 
And so like, I sort of grew up with a great suspicion of nationalism. And they, my parents were very disillusioned by Watergate and the Vietnam War. And so I was sort of stamped um, by that too. And so I, I've, I've never really would have said that I was someone who loved my country. This is going to get a lot of hate mail. But, um, <laughs> the, but uh, you know, and in fact, when I went traveling abroad, um, I, it never occurred to me that I would be homesick. Like, I thought I might be locally homesick for my ha- my house, but that I wouldn't be homesick for the American experience. And it was a great delight to discover that I, I did, in fact, miss America. You know, I missed American pop culture and miss like, American television. And it's these really mundane things about, you know, America. And, uh, and all of its absurdity. Yeah, and yeah. And, like, all yeah. the things that you really sort of, like, think that you hate about your own, you know, really sort of like the Starbucks. And, right. You know, and you get to, you know, some you, uh, Budapest. Is, this is our Starbucks around here. I just, I just want a really predictable cup of coffee. <laughs> like I've, I've had a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of, you know, experience in the place as it is, and I've done all that, but right now, today, I just really need to go somewhere and be, I need to sit in a room filled with books written in English and drink drink coffee from Starbucks right. <laughs> so I can remember, you know, who I am and not, and feel, like, slightly di- less alienated and dislocated. Um, anyway, so that's, so the poems tend to be elegiac and also sort of to be acknowledged that this isn't a wholly bad, that the American dream was not a bad dream, that it, that, it had, that it had aspects that were quite beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good place to end. Uh, Kathleen Grape, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.